So we are going through Matthew's Gospel. We've now come to the end of chapter 4. Next week, we start the famous Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in it for a long, long, long time. And it's just an incredibly important passage of Scripture. So I'm looking forward to that. And this passage today sets us up for that. And it gets us uh, ready, as it were, for that. So we've We've had the the introduction, we've had the temptation of Jesus in preparation for his ministry, we've had the quotation from Isaiah that uh, really establishes what his ministry is about, and we ended last time with Jesus' repetition of... um, of the statement of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's absolutely crucial that we have that by way of context as we move forward, because this is what is going on. This is the context for this. It's the context for the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is calling upon the nation of Israel to turn from their sins, and as we shall see very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, to turn from the errors of Pharisaic Judaism of that day, And to turn, and to turn to him, turn to Yahweh, turn to the keeping of the law that they were supposed to be doing, because the Messiah was here to establish the long-promised kingdom. He is offering them the kingdom, it's at hand, it's within their reach, and what the one thing that they're going to have to do if they want that kingdom is to repent. It's the one thing they have to do. And... Again, just by way of context, we've discussed this a few times, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the religious leaders of the day, they all believed that all Israel, everybody, had a share of the kingdom to come. In other words, if you were a Jew, you're in the kingdom. That's it. It's a done deal. They were the universalists of their day. Somehow they managed to be the universalists of the day and also the legalists of the day. It's quite an accomplishment, and we'll talk more about that as we progress through Matthew. But they they felt that everybody had a place. And what John the Baptist came and said was, no, 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 you have to repent. There has to be this turning. You can't simply, Jews, think that you have a place in the kingdom because you're Jewish. There needs to be a repentance. The Pharisees have misled you. And when the Pharisees came to John the Baptist and to observe the baptisms, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? It was clear that they needed to repent as well. And so this is the background and the context, that to this land that seems such darkness, there is now light in that Jesus has come and he is offering them the kingdom if only they would repent. Now to do this work, Like any good Jewish rabbi, he's going to need disciples. And that's what we see in the passage here. So looking at verse 18. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. What we see here is two stories of two disciples coming. Now remember, the gospel writers create their gospels, they put together from the massive information regarding all the things Jesus said and did, because they're trying to say specific things to a specific audience. So Matthew isn't giving us the calling of all of the disciples, he's giving us a calling of these specific four, and these two stories essentially follow the same structure. In both of these stories, it's Jesus who first appears... He comes across people who are doing their day-to-day work. He calls them to discipleship, and then they obediently follow the call. You see that with both of those stories, and we'll go through them as we um, as we go th- uh, as we deal with it. Um, 
This you need to understand, and the Jewish readers of Matthew's Gospel would understand. This is a well-worn uh, road of calling to discipleship. The passage that has the nearest parallel here is uh, 1 Kings 19. We're not actually going to turn there today, I know we normally do. But in 1 Kings 19, we have Elisha, who is plowing in the fields. And he's there plowing, and uh, Elijah comes along and throws down his mantle. And Elisha then takes the two oxen he's been plowing with. He kills them offers them up as a sacrifice, gives out the meat, and off he goes. And you have a very similar kind of storyline. And in fact, when God calls people in Scripture, they are normally just doing what people normally do. They're doing their jobs. Gideon was threshing on the threshing floor. Elisha, as I've said, was plowing. Amos, when he was called, was herding. And a little bit later in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to come to Matthew himself, and he's collecting taxes because he's a tax collector. They're just doing their jobs, they're going about their lives, and boom, God shows up. That's what happens. And there is, you know, we don't want to read too much theology into this, but there is certainly a parallel in so far as we go about our lives, we're living our lives, we're living our lives as sinners who are bound to our sin, who have to do sinful things because we're sinners, that's what we do. And we live under the illusion of free will, thinking, well, I can do this and I can do that. But all we're ever going to do is do things that our sinful natures want to do. And then suddenly, one day, boom, God shows up in our lives. And he opens our eyes and our lives become completely different. And suddenly we desire to do things we didn't desire to do before. Our hearts are moved by the things of God. We want to know him better. We want to see him more. We're like Moses. Show me your glory. We just want to know more of him. And who we are inside has changed because God has just shown up. What we don't see in scripture is people people sort of desperately seeking God and God playing some sort of game of hide and seek with them. Where God's like, ah, you're going to have to look a little bit more. But rather we have God showing up and people being transformed. And that's essentially what is being presented before us here. So we have here this, in the first example, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. There's two brothers there, Simon, who we better know as Peter, once Jesus gives him that name in chapter 16, and Andrew, his brother, they're casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And uh, we're not told in the text here precisely what time of day or when this was. Other gospel accounts give us additional details, but we're not playing uh, amalgamate the gospels. We're just teaching Matthew here. And so Matthew's focus is really is that just that these two brothers were doing their daily work. Then in verse 19, Jesus says to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What you've done thus far in your lives is of value. People need to eat. They need their vitamin D. They need their protein. And you're there getting the fish for them. And that's a great job. Capernaum, where Jesus sets up his ministry, as we saw last week, is a place that relied heavily on the fishing industry. And these men are needed, and they did their fishing. And, uh, you know, it was a hard job. They often fished at night. They had these nets, very, it astonishes me, you go back in time, way before the technology we have, just how clever people were. And they'd have these nets with layers, progressively smaller holes, and the fish would swim into the big holes, and then keep swimming and keep swimming until they couldn't get any more, and then they're kind of stuck, and then you kind of pull the net up. But that's tricky to do when they can see the nets, so that's why they so often fished at night. Maybe this is at morning time, they've come back and, or they're finishing up and, uh, you know, but it's a hard labor and they're doing good work. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a job that is far greater than this. You're going to be someone who instead of gathering fish is gathering men, gathering people, gathering people for the sake of the kingdom. 
In other words, he's calling them to be part of this ministry of offering the kingdom and gathering people to that kingdom. And that's the work that was offered to them. Now, we, we know from elsewhere, again, Matthew's not specific about it, but we know they'd already seen Jesus and met Jesus. I don't think this is their first introduction to Jesus, but this is presented in this way because this is the time when they have to leave behind their life and go and follow him. That's, this is the moment. And so what happens is in response is they immediately leave their nets and they followed him. And the leaving of the nets is significant because what they're doing is they're saying, we're not going to do this fishing anymore. That's how they live. That's how they make money. That's how they eat. That's how they get by in life. They fish. Now they're not doing it anymore. And and in a practical sense, this is far more than merely a call to discipleship. There are obviously parallels, and we'll talk about those in a moment. But what they're being asked to do is to come and follow a rabbi. Now, normally with rabbis, somebody would go and hear a rabbi teaching... And they would follow the rabbi, and the rabbi would go about his, his, you know, he'll teach and then off he'd go, and you'd just follow that rabbi. You'd be annoying, you know, you'd be like that little, that little fly buzzing around his head. You'd just kind of follow him. You'd just be there, hanging around anybody else who was his disciple. And then the, the rabbi would turn and ask, you know, questions, and you see this in John 1. Jesus says to, uh, to Nathaniel, come, come and see. And, and off they go. There's this invitation to go with a rabbi. And that's how it normally happened. So Matthew is presenting to us something that's quite different. The rabbi has gone and sought his disciples. This is contrary to what normally happens. We see this in scripture uh, with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah throws down the mantle. He uh, initially, but it's Elisha that runs after Elijah and and desires to follow him and chases after him. Here, it it is more like the incidences in scripture where God shows up. When God shows up to Gideon, when God shows up to Amos, when God just shows up and says, you, I'm having you. And that's how it's being presented. Why? Because the the Jews who read this are being nudged. This is God. That's the point that's being made. And so, uh, but they are being called to follow, as I was saying, to follow a rabbi. They are now going to be students of that rabbi. Disciples. That means learners. They are going to follow him, learn from him, do what he says listen to everything he teaches them. And he is now responsible for them. In other words, they're giving up their livelihood and they're trusting him. We see the same in verses 21 and 22. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. That's John the gospel writer, John who wrote the epistles, John who wrote Revelation. And they're in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Can you see in this second example, we have the parallel with, the connection to the previous example. But then we have one additional thing. In the first example, Peter and Andrew left their nets. Here, they leave their boat. Essentially, they're parallels. They're leaving behind fishing. But in the second example, the father is with them and they leave their father and off they go. The sacrifice happens and they leave. And that's where the parallel with Elijah and Elisha is helpful. Because Elisha is there and he's plowing and he has the two oxen and he actually slaughters the oxen as a sacrifice and then feeds them up. And it's like, I don't need these anymore. You know, if your if your income is reliant upon your oxen and you kill them, there's no going back. That's it. That that was what was being portrayed. Now, most of you here will never be called to full time ministry, where you're reliant upon the Lord for your income. In in contrast to sort of working a, a regular job, and 
clearly in this passage, that's what's going on. That they are now going with Jesus and they're trusting in him and he's going to have to, you know, provide as they learn from him. But obviously there are parallels. As they go to be disciples with Jesus, in the same way we are called to be disciples. We, we are in a, an era where for a generation or two, particularly in the West, particularly in America, we, we've had people who have presented a form of the gospel that simply requires you to come forwards, sign on the dotted line, as the music plays in the minor key, just, just come and say the sinner's prayer and, and then boom, you've got your fire insurance and you're good to go. And, People go out thinking that they're Christians because they've intellectually agreed with the message, responded emotionally, and now they've been declared to be Christians, and all is going to be good for eternity to come. That's not what the Bible represents to us at all. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, at the conclusion of this Gospel, is the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Right at the beginning with John the Baptist, he was speaking about fruit that was associated with those who've repented. In our midweek studies, we've been going through the book of Romans in the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And we've seen the emphasis, not merely believing in what God says, not merely believing in historical accounts uh, that they actually happened, but believing in the sense of placing our trust in God, in Yahweh, in Christ Jesus, placing our trust in Him. And when we trust Him, it means we trust what He says. And when the world goes in a different direction, we stand firm because we stand upon His unchanging Word. And it means when circumstances get difficult, we continue to trust in Him because we trust in a person who does not change as opposed to in Him giving us circumstances that are constantly changing. Our faith is our trust in Him. And that changes us because as we place our trust in Him, In this new covenant era, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And the the Spirit of God empowers us to live in the newness of life. To live differently than before. And people who are Christians are not people who've responded to an altar call. They're not people who are familiar enough with the Bible from childhood that they can recite certain facts from a catechism. They're not people who intellectually accept that there was a guy called Jesus and he died on the cross and somehow that's for their sins and, and you know, and there's promise of heaven and they believe in that promise. A Christian is a person who has let go of their past, turned, repented and trusted in Yahweh for everything. We've trusted him for our eternity. We've trusted in him for our now. We trusted in what he has said, and we trust in what he does. We trust in him, period. And as much as that is what the scripture presents, you can see the parallel here with these callings. These men left behind their nets, they left behind their boat, They left behind their family, and off they went. And they went to Jesus. And there was no plan B. Elisha's oxen were eaten. Not only did they put all their eggs in one basket, if I might use such an extravagant analogy in this day and age, but they had taken those eggs and they'd scrambled them. There's no going back. When we have our eyes open to the truth of the gospel and we place our trust in Jesus Christ, there is no turning back. If we do turn back, we were never called. If we do turn back, we never trusted in Him. 
Because those who trust in him aren't, aren't, uh, discard, don't discard him when circumstances change. We don't see things in the Bible and go, oh, I didn't realize I couldn't do that, and then bail. Because we haven't trusted in, in, in simply the bits of the Bible we already knew. None of us, at the point of salvation, know the entire Bible. In fact, spoiler alert, I've been a pastor for 22 years, and I still don't know all the Bible. This is a constant learning. I believe that we'll be learning for eternity. The learning will never cease. Though our bodies will be purified and glorified and removed of all sin, we nonetheless will spend eternity in bodies. And the bodies will be similar to these bodies. And in this body, my brain is in a skull which is of limited size and capacity. And I can't recall everything. Which gives me such a glorious understanding of eternity because it means that the truths that are revealed to me maybe in the first thousand years or so of eternity I might need to be taught again maybe 10,000 years down the line I don't think our, our learning will ever end, ever cease so when we don't know everything how is it that when we learn new things that we embrace those things even if we never agreed to them in the first place because we've trusted in Him And not simply in what limited knowledge we had at the time. Our faith is in him. And that means a letting go of everything that is not of him. Now if you were a fisherman, you probably have to keep on fishing. If you work at a bank, you'll keep on banking. If you're a teacher, you'll keep on teaching. If you do administration, you'll keep on administering. Whatever you're working in, you'll probably continue working in that. But in another sense, you have to leave everything behind. Do not be like those Egyptians who grumbled. Jesus made reference to that already In the quotations from scripture in the tempting in the wilderness, we made reference a few weeks ago, so it's fresh in the minds of Matthew's readers, when he referenced the Israelites grumbling in the wilderness, and how they said, oh, we were better off in Egypt. Don't you dare. Don't you hark back to the the joys, quote unquote, of sin. Don't hark back to the freedoms, quote unquote, that you had. You weren't free. You were bound to your sin. Your sin drove you. You said, but I'm choosing to do this. Well, of course you are. Your heart's sinful. And you're bound to it. You're a slave to your sin. And now you look back as if it was somehow a better time because now God restricts you so much. What a What a nonsense. We have been called by him and we have been promoted from fishing for fish to fishing for men. We have been promoted from being human beings who simply live and exist and have a small impact on the world around us for better or for worse and then we die and our families cry if we're lucky and then within a generation we're mostly forgotten unless we do something particularly good or particularly bad and then we might get in the history books and people might remember this tiny slither of our lives for a little bit longer. That was who we were. And now we have been given a new life, a spiritual life. We have been given the Holy Spirit, God himself, who dwells within us to empower us to do the works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we now have a purpose purpose to every breath we take, every day we live, everything we do. Now what we do was prepare before for all eternity... That God said, I'm going to have this one, and he or she is going to do this work that is uniquely for them, and I will prepare them and give them the experiences and the struggles and the trials and the pains and the heartache and all the things necessary that they can do the things that I want them alone to do, and what they will do will glorify me for all eternity. And you want to go back? Shame on us. Shame on us. 
The call to discipleship. Yes, it's hard. Jesus will build on this text as we go further into Matthew. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We are being called to say no to our sinful desires. We are being called to embrace the realities of death, be it death to our desires, our dreams and our hopes and our wants, or literally death. And to follow Christ wherever he may lead. No matter who may, who may harm us, who may reject us, who may slander us, who may hurt us. We will simply look to him alone. Seeking his affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's it. It's hard, I get it. But it's so glorious. Is it not? Everything we do, every step we take, prepared for us by God, that our lives may ripple through eternity. Have any of you led another human soul to Jesus? Watched Jesus open his or her eyes to the truth of the gospel? And seen, witnessed a new birth. It's magnificent. It's just magnificent. There's nothing better or greater. Why don't you pray that God gives you that privilege? Why not pray every time you get out of your car to walk into the grocery store? Why not pray every time you go to hang out with friends or to a sporting event? Why not pray before you go to work in the morning? God, may I have the honor to lead someone to you? And even as the dogs get the scraps under the table, maybe I could just sow some seeds that somebody else might lead them in. Let us take Delight in the fact that that might be part of our calling. And let us pursue our calling. Let us cast aside sin. Let us, let us fight that fight. Let us put sin to death. Let's put our selfishness and our pride to death day by day by day that God might use us. And let's be patient when He doesn't use us as we might like. And let's pray daily for those opportunities. I look around this room and I see people who have encouraged me, people who have prayed for me, people who have supported me, people who have rebuked me, people who have led me to repentance, people who have have comforted me. And I see the work of God. And, And there is a butterfly effect in that every time I stand up to preach, the work of God is happening. God's Holy Spirit is working through the gift that he gave to me. And I'm working, I'm doing something, I prepare and I study and I, and, and I, and I deliver. But this is your work too. I really want you to get that. This is your work too. Because we, as a church, are one. We've come together as a congregation in unity with a commitment to love and to support and to minister one to another. That's why it's so important that we're here as often as we can be because, because when you're here, you have conversations and conversations are ministry and you don't get to pray for someone until they tell you what they need prayer for and they don't just tell you what they need prayer for until you befriend them and you get to know them. You get some people like me who we're kind of extroverts and we just go blah, 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 blah. And then you get other people who are more like my wife and more introverts. And you got to just be gentle, gentle, gentle. Otherwise, you don't get anything out of them. And, and so we need to find ways to minister to the myriad of different people that are, we find here. 
And as we minister to one another, we become a shareholder, as it were, a player in their story. We are making a difference in their lives. God is using us corporately as disciples to minister one to another. And then when any one of us has a victory, we all go, yay, because we're all part of that. And when any one of us stumbles and falls, we all rush to comfort and to help and at times to rebuke because we all got to help each other get back up just like we need help getting back up. And we don't bite and devour one another. And we love one another. And we cherish one another because we are all working God's purposes in our lives. And so we encourage one another. And sometimes that encouragement is, hey, brother, Hey, sister, just leave those nets behind. That's gone. It's done. Yeah, I know it's hard trusting God, but let it go. Let it go. Yeah, I know it's going to make life more difficult, but let it go. Jesus went to the cross. First Peter 2 tells us, He entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. It's not for us to put everything to right in the world. We haven't got to right all the wrongs and, you know, do organize everything, be in charge of everything. And we just have to again and again and again, we just have to sometimes just let go. Let go of the nets, let go of the boat, let go of the father, let go of what opinions other people might have of us, let go of the, uh, the, the heart, heartache that we feel over how we've been treated, let go over the things that we've relied upon and turned to to comfort us when we struggled in the past. We just have to let go of stuff. And it's so difficult. And I get that. Friends, I really get that. I feel that struggle. But when we let go, we get to follow Jesus. When we stop trusting in other things, we get to experience the privilege of trusting in him. Don't look back. Press on. That then leads us to verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. This is very much a summary statement. We see uh, the the same thing said almost word for word in uh, end of chapter 9, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. The, the two verses stand as summary statements. The, the one in chapter 9 comes ahead of a, another section of teaching. This comes before the Sermon of the Mount. But, but I think really it's, that, and we've seen this in Matthew already, we see these structural markers. Do you remember the beginning of chapter 1? The son of Abraham, son of David. And then at the end of chapter 3, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we have that introduction marked out. This is a section of Matthew that's kind of now marked out for us. That what we have here is we have a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. And then in the next three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, we are going to see that Jesus has authority in his words and in his teaching. Then we're going to get to chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to see a whole bunch of miracles. And we're going to see that Jesus has authority in his deeds as well. So what this statement is, is it's a summary statement at the beginning and at the end, saying Jesus has authority in both word and in deed. So let's break that down. He was going throughout all Galilee, so he's an itinerant rabbi, going around and teaching. And he is doing three separate things. Teaching, preaching, and healing. And there you see the combination of both word and deed. He's teaching in the synagogues. We see this very clearly throughout the Gospels. We see it even going into the epistles with regards to Paul, the Gospel to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. That there is a priority 
to the Jewish nation. Why? Because they were promised the Messiah. They were promised the covenant. And what we're going to see in Matthew's gospel is an answer to why is it that so few Jews today believe. We're going to find that answer later on. And the spoiler alert is because they've rejected their Messiah and they've rejected his kingdom. But nonetheless, the gospel's for them first. And so Jesus is going to the synagogues and he is uh, going there as he travels around Galilee and he's teaching. This area that had such darkness, last week's sermon, is now getting light as Jesus teaches in the synagogues. And specifically, he is preaching the message of the gospel of the kingdom. Here we have the word gospel. We've had the, the kingdom reference previously. But here we have the adding of the word gospel. Gospel is a, is a word that is a... When you're learning a new language, you learn certain words first, right? So, you know, when uh, the, the Spanish speakers in the church are talking in Spanish to each other, I go, yeah, si, si. Yeah, claro que si, de nada. Because they're the only words I really remember, you know, and I kind of, I kind of bluff my way in. And um, because when you learn, there's a few words you learn first that are most useful. When you're learning Christianese, which so many people do, one of the first words you learn is gospel. The problem with Christianese is we sometimes forget what the words really mean in English. And the word gospel means good news. Good news. And so what he's saying here is, in harmony with the previous statement, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what Jesus is doing is he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. Now we have to read this contextually and chronologically. And we have to read our Bibles progressively. He is not teaching the parables about the the kingdom of heaven being like a sower sowing seed. He's not telling them that the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. They come in chapter 13, which comes after chapter 12. And in chapter 12, we have the final rejection of the Messiah and his kingdom by the Jewish people, which leads to a change in the nature of the kingdom that is then offered and to whom that kingdom is offered. So at this point, when Jesus is preaching about the kingdom, what is he teaching? Is he making up parables and stories and giving these kind of little nuggets of, you know, you remember it like this and remember it like that? No, he's not. What he's teaching is passages like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against Yahweh and his anointed one? The earth is his footstool. Tremble. Kiss the sun lest he be angry with you. Find your refuge in him. Passages that speak of the coming king and his coming kingdom. Maybe he's teaching them from Daniel chapter 9. Maybe he's teaching them about the chronology about how when he came, the wise men came before. I imagine Jesus here is teaching from the Old Testament. And by the way, folks, one of the things that we will note when we come to chapter 13 and the parables is how he is essentially teaching things that are not in the Old Testament because there is a new nature to the kingdom that wasn't previously revealed at that point because of the rejection of the kingdom. So Jesus is offering them the kingdom. He's offering them the opportunity that he would rule and reign on the earth, that he would be the sole ruler, that the Romans would be gone, that the Jews would worship their Messiah on earth, and that the Gentile nations would come and worship the Jewish God, and that every Jew from the young to the old, from the high in society to the low in society, that every single one of them would be saved. They would be circumcised in their hearts as well as in the flesh, and that they would be the people of God, and that the prophecies that were given to them regarding the land, regarding the kingdom, would be fulfilled. And I think, for my part, that that's really good news for Jews to hear. That's what he's preaching and proclaiming in the context of Scripture as we find this passage. And that's quite, that's quite a statement to make, isn't it? For him to go and be saying, you remember what David said about the kingdom? Remember what Daniel said about the kingdom? Remember what Isaiah said about the king? Remember what he said about the Messiah who'd be king? Remember what he said about the servant? That's me. 
Well, if you're going to go and make statements like that, you better back it up. That leads us to the next part, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The fact that it wasn't some diseases and not others is very, very significant, and we'll see why as we progress through Matthew's Gospel. There were certain miracles that the Pharisees believed that men of God could do. So him doing miracles doesn't make him the Messiah. But a Messiah would never do a miracle on a Sabbath. Oh no, that would be a violation of the Pharisees' understanding of Sabbath. So so he couldn't do that, but Jesus did. And the Pharisees also taught that the Messiah would only be the only one able to do certain kinds of miracles. And Jesus did those miracles as well, that they didn't believe anybody else but the Messiah could do. So Matthew is going to give us so much detail about the specific miracles, the specific healings, and what each of those communicates to the Jewish people around him. But that is to come. For now, we're just given this summary that it's every kind of disease and every kind of sickness from among the people. Now, because Jesus is going and proclaiming and preaching good news, which we cannot understand any other way as to a declaration of his Messiahship, and he's backing it up by healing people, it's hardly surprising that the news spread. The news spread about him through all Syria. That's going up further north. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And again, each of those communicates something different, and each of those we will deal with as we see specific examples of them. It's interesting that here Jesus is in the northern kingdom of Israel right now, the northern part which has seen such darkness, and he's ministering, and people from even outside of Israel are now coming down to be healed. And you see that parallel then in verse 25, Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What we have here is the breadth of the land, north and south, and we have Jews and Gentiles. This is Matthew's reoccurring theme from the very first verse. Son of Abraham, son of David. He is the son of David. He is the Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people to establish a Jewish kingdom. But Abraham was told, through you, all nations will be blessed. He's also the son of Abraham. He is the Messiah to both Jews and to Gentiles. And Matthew is making that point very clear to his Jewish audience. And this final verse of the chapter introduces for the first time in Matthew a word that is going to become quite important. It's going to be repeated in the very next verse. It's the word crowds. The crowds are a significant character in the Gospel of Matthew. The word crowds is telling us a story of its own. The crowds see what he does and they go, ooh, and they follow him. And then the crowds hear things he says and they go, oh, and they don't follow him. And then the crowds kind of see what's happening and they go, oh, maybe. And then the crowds hear the leadership and they say, ah, no. And the crowds are like the wind and the waves. They just get blown around. And the point of Matthew's gospel is that we are not to be like the crowds. We are not to be like the masses. And it is the crowds in chapter 5 and verse 1 that lead him to go up into the mountain. The crowds say, hey, there's a miracle man. He's doing these things. Could he be the Messiah? Who, does he, who do you think he is? And, and what do you do when people do that? If people say, hey, there's this guy in Burbank and he's got a British accent. We should go and hear. What do you, what do, you do if, if people come to hear? What you do is you call on them to repent. There's, my social media is flooded with talk of revival um, in a certain place. And I'm not going to place judgment on anything right now. But suffice to say, I was, a, I was in a very, very different wing of the church 30 years ago when everybody was talking about a revival in Toronto. And all it was was Christians 
recirculating. Christians, oh, something's happening with other Christians. Okay, that's where Christians go. And there's this constant recycling of Christians who are showing up to a location because they think God's doing something in the location. And God's not doing something where we are, so let us go to a geographical location where God is so that we might get what God is doing and we might go back with what God is doing. So much bad theology in that whole place. So much bad theology. You know where God is working in your heart? Do you know where he lives in your heart? In you. He indwells you through the Holy Spirit. And there is nothing that you need to go to a geographical location to get. Even the promised land. And by the way, if you were baptized in the Jordan, you don't get bonus points over somebody who was baptized in a bath or here. No bonus points. That's not how it works. So what do you do if there were suddenly like massive crowds coming and people saying, oh, it's a revival, it's a revival. What would I do if that was this church? What would I do in that situation? This is what I do. Repent. Because you do not want people, I, I'm reading these reports right now, I'm reading them like by the hour almost. Oh, I went, it was wonderful, you could feel the presence of God. It's like, Bleh! the presence of God is within you every day. The presence of God is no more with you when you're in a meeting and the music's playing and everybody's feeling great. He's no more with you then when you woke up at this, in the, this morning when the alarm went off and you didn't get enough sleep and you hadn't had a cup of coffee yet and you kicked the dog and you swore at your spouse. The Spirit of God was with you then as well. So how do we know if God is doing a unique work? We call on Him repentance. We call for repentance. That's what we do. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Because nobody sees the kingdom apart from repentance. Nobody gets to have a place in heaven apart from repentance. We have our lives... The things that we've trusted in, the things that we've loved, the things that we've pursued. And we have to leave them behind as nets and boats and family. And we have to follow Jesus. And I'm starting to see reports from that place where there's people saying, Oh, well, you know, I'm this gay guy. And I went and I felt really welcomed. And I had this prayer request that we would be accepted. And they wiped it off the board. But then I talked with someone and they put it back up again. And it's like, no, repent. Because that's the only way we know a work of God is when people leave their sin behind and they turn to him and their lives are different. And the things that they pursued, they now say, that's sinful, I'm not going to pursue it anymore. And then what happens is it changes society. And by the way, if you're interested, that's my definition of revival. It's when so many people get genuinely saved that society is impacted. Like when people take their household idols and they put them on a big bonfire, and then the people who make a living out of making the idols start a riot because you're ruining their livelihood. That's a revival right there. So I'm, I don't want us to be the kind of Christian that is pursuing a buzz or a, an, a, an event or a, or what have you. And then you end up with people paying 400 bucks for the best tickets at a worship concert. God have mercy on our souls. We need to be people for whom the radical concept of discipleship is one in our own hearts, without music playing, without the rah-rah of the crowd, at the quiet moment in the quiet time. That moment when you're tempted to look at things online you shouldn't look at. That moment when you're tempted to be short with your spouse rather than forbearing. That moment when you want to return to the things that you trusted. That moment when you want to harbor that bitterness in your heart because it makes you feel a bit better and how dare they. That moment when you're tempted to just return to Egypt. That's the time where real discipleship is, is seen and is forged and we progress in our Christian lives. And so I look at this passage here. And I look at the reaction of those first disciples and I look at Jesus going and preaching and I want to re- respond like they did. And what we're doing, what Matthew's doing for us here is he's taking us from chapter 4. Here's four guys, two sets of brothers. They were called, they repented, they came. And now we have the introduction of a fifth character. Peter, Andrew, James, John, crowds. 
And the crowds are coming and they're gathering and they're coming en masse. And here they are. Oh, I heard he healed, he healed little Joey's brother. He had, he had a, he was blind and now he sees. Oh, I, I heard that he, he healed, um, you know, Mary's, uh, Mary had bad hearing and now she can hear again. Oh, this is amazing. We should go and hear what that guy's got to say. And so they do. And he says, ah, oh, crowds. And he gathers them on a mountain and he says, I want to tell you something. That's where we'll be next time. Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, as we consider the call of discipleship in this passage before us today, Lord, may it have real, vivid impact on our lives. May we who have heard this message today, whether it's here in this room, via live stream, or at a later date, maybe years down the line, Father, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be calling us to repentance. To leave behind the nets. Maybe those nets are overt and wicked sin. Immorality. Unfaithfulness. Idolatry. And maybe the nets are just things that we get tangled up in. That distract us from why we're here. Spirit, call us to repentance in our own hearts right now. And may we look at Christ who suffered and died for our sins. And may we loathe our sins knowing the price that had to be paid for them. And may we exalt the one who died in our place. And may his glory and his majesty Preach and teach us that we might seek evermore to follow him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him wherever he leads. In this body, Lord, may we not be a church of compromise. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. 